We began last week in 2 Corinthians 1, making our way through the book, and I want to finish the chapter tonight. I don't know how you picture Paul the Apostle. Um, I have heard people sort of portray him as somebody who's very aloof, um, detached from people, um, somebody who is very, very confident and maybe with a deep apostolic voice. And... um, the kind of a guy who, who wouldn't want others to, to see the cracks in his character. Like he attended an Anthony Robbins motivational seminar, Unleash the Apostle Deep Within, or something like that. <laughs> and as I read this book, I find that Paul the Apostle opens himself up emotionally. He's very vulnerable. Homer Kent, who is a Bible scholar and commentator, gives the name 2 Corinthians, he calls it a heart opened wide. Because Paul is the most personal and vulnerable in, in any of the letters. He gets emotional. He, he lets the crack show. He shows his deep emotion and his love for the Corinthian church. And that's why this section tonight, I think, is good for communion, because of all of the celebrations that we have as a church, this is the most intimate, where we reveal our hearts sometimes even to one another when we have times of prayer. This is the place, of all places, this is the the celebration when forgiveness should flow among us. Because there may be misunderstandings. I bet you there are. I bet tonight, represented right here among us, are some tensions even in in relationships here. And God wants those cleared up as we bring our gift to the altar to be able to say, I love you, I forgive you. The book of 2 Corinthians, a reminder, was written for a few reasons. First of all, it was written to encourage, to encourage the church at Corinth to forgive. See, there was a guy they kicked out of the church in 1 Corinthians. And Paul wanted them to bring that sinning brother who had repented and has shown the works of repentance, they want to bring him back into the church. So Paul encourages them to forgive him and to restore him. A second reason he writes, and we're going to touch on this tonight, is to explain why Paul has changed his itinerary, his travel plans, and didn't come to Corinth at the time he had previously said he would. Believe it or not, this upset some of the Corinthians. Where's Paul? He's not a man of his word. So he's going to explain why. A third reason is to establish his apostleship. There were people in the church of Corinth who said, maybe Paul really isn't called as an apostle. Why is he any different than us? What makes him in the lineup of Peter, James, John, and the other apostles? And a fourth reason is to enlist their support. He's taking an offering from these Gentile churches and bringing the money back into Judea because some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had lost their jobs. Times were very difficult for them. So he's simply getting help from other churches. Now, Paul had made travel plans. 
He had planned to go to Macedonia. He had planned to go to Corinth. If if you can read your Bible, if you can't, don't worry about it. If you can and your Bible is open to the passage, go back a page to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'll read it to you. In verse 5 of that chapter, Paul says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter there with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 15. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit or a second blessing by a second visit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. His original itinerary was to go from Ephesus, where he was in Asia Minor, by ship, sail to Corinth, meet with them, fellowship with them, then go by land up through Athens into Macedonia, visit the churches, then go back by land to Corinth the second time so that they could receive a second benefit of his ministry. And then he would sail all the way to Judea. He wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Those were his plans. That was his itinerary. That's what he divulged. That's what I'm going to do. But things didn't work out. Where is he? How can you trust him? He said he'd be here. He's not here. People were upset. He made plans. Plans didn't work out the way he thought. If you want to make God laugh, make plans. <laughs> Just when you think you've got it wired, you've got all the plans made, exactly how it's going to go, you find things change a little bit. Somebody once said, God works through the regularity with which He changes our plans. Paul knew all about that. I can sympathize with Paul. I've made a lot of plans. And those who know me well know that when I say something, they'll just pencil it in. They won't put it in pen. It's just pencil because it may change. There's got to be an eraser close by. I made plans last week some months ago to be in upstate New York so we could do a radio rally for evangelism and then uh, do also a men's conference. I planned to do it. I wanted to do it, but I had to call and cancel because I had made other plans on top of that to be in Toronto, Canada for a Billy Graham School of Evangelism. So I went and did that. So as I read through this letter and I see the misunderstanding, I can relate with Paul. We must always make plans with a P.S. You know that, right? You make plans with a little tag at the end, oh, P.S., if it's the Lord's will. Because it might not be. And that's what James 4 tells us, right? James puts it this way, Come now, you who say... We're going to go into such and such a town tomorrow, spend a year there, buy, sell, and make a profit. 
You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, says James. For what is your life? It's just a vapor that appears for a moment, then it vanishes away. You rather should say, we're going to do that if it's the Lord's will. And that's exactly what Paul has said. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you. Notice, if the Lord permits. They didn't remember that part. They're just mad that Paul didn't show up. And so the, the remaining section, beginning in verse 12 to the end of chapter 1, Paul has to sort of explain this. Verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as also you are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul had a share of critics. They attacked his integrity. As I mentioned, Paul's insincere, they said. Paul's unreliable, they said. You know, spiritual leaders die the death of a thousand expectations. Every person has some set of expectations for a spiritual leader to fulfill. That's okay. That comes with the territory. But I remember when I first started in this ministry, how that struck me. And it, it sort of, it, it, it threw me for a loop. Oh, you're the pastor. You're supposed to study you're supposed to visit everyone. You're supposed to do the administration. You're supposed to do the books. You're supposed to do the worship. And I did, and I tried. But there reached a point where I couldn't. Well, I could, but I just wasn't very good at them. And uh, w when we put others in those positions, they said, you're right, you weren't very good at it. They're a whole lot better. Let them do it. But a survey was conducted years ago by a university in California on congregational expectations for the pastor. How much time should he spend studying? How much time should he spend administrating? How much time should he spend visiting, etc.? 135 and a half hours a week, they said. Put it all together, that's what they expected, which would leave the poor fella with 4.5 hours per day to himself. That's to eat with his family. That's to spend meaningful time with his family. That's to get a good 20 minutes nap and then go back at it again. It's just unrealistic. Well, Paul's facing that with the Corinthians, just because he didn't show up when they said, when they thought he should. Ann Landers put together a great little piece a few years ago that she actually read from somewhere else and put it in her newspaper column called The Perfect Pastor. She wrote this, Results of a computerized survey indicate the perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. You can see I'm not perfect already. 
He condemns sin, but he never embarrasses anyone. He works from eight in the morning until midnight and is also the janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $50 a week to the poor. He is 28 years old and has been preaching for 25 years. He is wonderfully gentle and handsome, loves to work with teenagers, and spends countless hours with senior citizens. He makes 15 calls daily on parish families, shut-ins, and hospital patients, and yet he's always in his office when needed. Now, though I meet all those qualifications... No, I'm just kidding. I don't, obviously. She continues, If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this letter to six other parishes that are tired of their pastors too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. In one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. And the letter ends, Have faith in this letter. One parish broke the chain and got its old pastor back in three months. Now Paul writes, and he says, We have conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and in godly sincerity. Paul was a simple guy. And I think that people misjudged him, making him more complicated than he really was. I think he simply said, Listen, I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do if the Lord permits. He articulated his vision. It didn't work out. He said, So what? I'm flexible. But, but they, they read something into that. You know, I find that some of the most successful, even famous people in the ministry are very, very simple at heart. They, they may have a machine, an organization around them that is there for, for needful purposes that makes that person appear complex, but deep inside, simple. I think of Dr. Billy Graham. He is a very simple man, a man of simple faith, a very warm and gracious person. I remember when I first met him, I was in awe of him, and he just, you know, sort of set me at ease. And one time we were able to go over to his house for lunch, and he came, you know, not in his evangelist suit, but in his blue jeans and his blue jean jacket, and opened the door and said, Come in and have soup. <laughs> and just shot the breeze, just talked about the Lord, and the ministry. Very simply, very sincerely. And yet so often he's been misjudged by so many. I think Paul was like that. He speaks here in these verses the testimony of our conscience. In other words, what you see is what we are. I'm the same inside and outside. Not complex. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on the way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Okay, you make your plans. You pencil in or pen in your schedule in your daytimer. 
Then, because you're a Christian, you commit it to the Lord, right? And then you're flexible, right? Oh, that's the hard part. Things may change. And then what do you do? Well, A, you complain. You get disillusioned because after all, Lord, this isn't what I had in mind. These aren't my plans. What, as if God has to keep your schedule? I think the old television show sums it up in title, Father Knows Best. And your father knows best. God said, my ways aren't your ways. We underline that, but do we live by it? My thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. So what do we do? Well, the Corinthians complained. They weren't as flexible. Paul was very simple and sincere and not complicated. They were a little more complex. Um, it brings up an issue, and I want to touch on it before we move on and take communion. Uh, Christians have different views of what it is to discern the will of God. I've had very interesting conversations with many believers, and uh, some are very mystical, and they read everything that happens in life as some sign of the will of God. A rabbit just went across the street. I think God's trying to show me something. What? Pray for rabbits? I don't know. What? And if you look at Paul's life, Paul had a view of the will of God that people around him did not agree with. Have you noticed that? In Acts chapter 20, he is he's on his way to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop him from going there. And he's with the Ephesian elders. And he says that he's on the way to Jerusalem. He says, however, in every place I've gone, the Holy Spirit has testified that tribulation and chains await me in Jerusalem. And then he says, but none of these things move me. I don't even count my life dear to myself that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry I've received from the Lord. That was cool. He's saying, everywhere I go, people say, Paul, don't go. They get this word from the Holy Spirit that I'm going to be thrown in jail. He goes, so what? I'm ready to die, man. I want to go. I feel like the Lord's leading me to go. Then from Ephesus, he sails to Cyprus. From Cyprus, he sails to the coast of the Holy Land, up in Tyre. And there are some disciples in Tyre who get together. And it says, they tell Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem some prophetic utterance, some word from the Lord. But Paul doesn't read it as a word from the Lord not to go, just their interpretation of what's going to happen to him, that they shouldn't go. Then they make it down to Caesarea, which is, is not far at all from Jerusalem. So Paul's made it very close. When he's in Caesarea, a prophet by the name of Agabus takes Paul's belt or sash around his waist, binds his hands and feet, and everybody in the room looks at him, because it's a weird guy tying himself up. And Agabus says, So shall happen to the man who owns this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. The Jews will bind him and deliver him to the Gentiles. Then everybody on his own team, as well as the Christians in Caesarea, said, Paul, don't you get it, man? You're not supposed to go to Jerusalem. You know what Paul says? He says, what do you mean by weeping 
and breaking my heart. I'm not only ready to be bound in Jerusalem, but also to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you stop a guy like that? When he's had four or five prophetic words of what's going to happen to him, and he goes, tough toast, I'm going. I feel like the Lord wants me to go. Now, I've read different debates. It wasn't the Lord's will that he goes. It was the Lord's will that he goes. I don't know. But I tell you what, when you have a guy that feels in his head and his heart that God wants him to do something that strongly, you're not going to stop him. I believe the Lord wanted him to go. And I believe the Lord wanted him to go and get arrested in Jerusalem and be put in jail for two years in Caesarea because his heart's desire was to go to Rome. And he got there, but it was a free trip. And listen, I, you know, God being interested in economy. <laughs> but still, it was his will to get this guy to Rome. Got him to Rome as a prisoner on a Roman ship. So the government paid for his evangelism in Rome. I like that. Therefore, look at verse 17. When I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I planned, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. Because I wasn't acting like a politician when I was with you, saying one thing and then saying another thing, playing to the crowd. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Simply put, God leads, Paul is saying, one step at a time. You, you can't make long-range plans, or when you do, when you make long-range plans, just be flexible, that's all. You know, I've had a lot of people ask me, well, Skip, what's your five-year plan? And then what's your ten-year plan? You know, years ago I tried a five-year plan. I didn't make it past a couple months. The plan changed so radically. God has different plans. Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? It's not. It's first skip one, three. But it's a biblical principle. Be flexible. Make plans, but then say, Lord, what is your will? Verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas, or Silvanus, he's called here, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him Amen to the glory of God. This is what he's saying. Everything the Corinthians knew about Christ, they had learned from Paul and Timothy and Silas. And they had come to believe that the message about Christ was trustworthy. So it would be odd then to receive a message they would say is trustworthy and yet to say the messengers can't be trusted. They're unreliable. They're not trustworthy. You've already believed this message. It's the truth about Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, our testimony wasn't vacillating. It was very consistent. Even as Jesus Christ is consistent. That's whom we have preached. That's whom we've represented. And Jesus Christ, says Paul, is God's divine yes. All of the faithfulness 
revolves around Jesus Christ. In Him it's yes and amen to the glory of God through us. Will God ever send a deliverer, the Jewish nation asked? Well, in Christ, yes. He was the one. To which the church responds, amen. Will there ever be an end to disease and war and famine, injustice, unrighteousness in Jesus? Yes. When he comes back the second time. And we'll all say, amen. We'll agree to it. Will righteousness ever reign over all the world? Yes. In verse 20, Paul takes his eyes, their eyes, off of himself and puts it on Jesus. Uh, For the promises of God in Jesus, in him are yes and in him are amen. Follow the train of thought. The Corinthians had their eyes, their focus on Paul. What's up with Paul? Why isn't Paul here? Doesn't Paul love us anymore? Why did he write that first letter? How come he didn't come this time? And so Paul needs to take this group of people who are so immature that they fight over Paul and Apollos and Peter and all these little teachers in the church and get their eyes back on Jesus. And we must always remember that. Human beings have a tendency to elevate other human beings, put them on a pedestal they don't belong on. You know, Jesus never said, follow my people or follow my preachers. He said, follow me. And the Corinthians needed to follow Jesus and look to Him for the satisfaction and the fulfillment. There is a movement. I just want to touch on this. You may have heard about it. It's sort of dying out, thank God. But it was a movement a few years ago that gained a lot of momentum called the shepherding movement. Saying that each Christian should have his own personal shepherd. Might be another brother and sister, but that... that Brother or sister is your personal shepherd. You can't do anything unless your shepherd says it's okay. And then that shepherd has his or her own personal shepherd and his own personal shepherd, etc. It's sort of like a giant pyramid scheme. You tithe to your shepherd. You want to buy a television? You ask your shepherd, can I buy a television? Oh, I don't know. Let me pray about it. And then I'll tell you if you can or can't. How ludicrous. Why, if the Lord wants to be your shepherd, would you let another sheep be your shepherd? (laughs) Why settle for anything less than, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? I remember a gal came up to me once and she said, "Um, I'm really in a quandary. There's this guy, and I think I should marry him, but then I'm not sure if I should, and some people say I should, then other people say I shouldn't. What do you say? I I don't know. She goes, well, you need to tell me, because I told the Lord I'm going to come in and see you today, and I told the Lord that whatever you tell me, that's what I'm going to do. I thought, dear lady, I have enough problems knowing what I'm going to do let alone for me to tell you what you ought to do in this area. I'll pray for you. I'll give you biblical principles on knowing the will of God and things that you can look for. I'm not going to tell you if you should marry him or not. He might be a creep. Or he might be a godsend. Or he might be both. 
but I'm not going to tell you what you ought to do. It works that way sometimes. Verse 21, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. You're lucky I didn't come. I did it to spare you. I had a thing or two on my mind to tell you. You ought to thank God I didn't come when I did. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. That's the chapter. It covers it. But in in that last section of verses... Paul uncovers, and this is where we'll close tonight, Paul uncovers four great actions of God toward people who believe, you and I. Four great things God has done. Back in verse 21, number one, He strengthens our unity. This is where communion comes in. He strengthens our unity. He says, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. Notice how it's worded. He establishes us with you. Not he establishes us or he establishes you. He establishes us with you. We're together in this. As if to say, these criticisms that you guys are leveling at me, they didn't come from God. God didn't inspire that. God is all about unity, bringing the body of Christ together, establishing us together. You know the Lord's Prayer. Does it say, My Father who art in heaven? Now, our Father, hello, we're in this thing together. You remember that before Jesus was taken to Golgotha to be crucified, that he had a lengthy prayer, John chapter 17, with his Father. It's all about private, personal communication to God, the Godhead has, the, 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 the Son and the Father. What was the thing that was on the heart of Jesus for the church as he looked through the ages. Remember when he said, I just don't pray for my disciples, but for all of those who will believe on me through their word. Now here the the shadow of the cross is looming over Jesus. He knows he's going to be killed in a few hours' time. And yet what is pressing on his heart for the future church? Unity. He says that they may all be one as you and I, Father, are one. He wants unity, not division. Satan loves division. He wants to divide what God wants to unite. Now Jesus said that he would build his church. I'm not worried about that part. I'm worried about the self-destruction of the church. I'm confident that Jesus is building up his church worldwide, but what happens within the body of Christ when we take a hold of it is sometimes what happened in Corinth. There was division among them as they divided themselves up. How do you foster unity? How do you develop it? Simply, and let's keep it simple, by each member listening to the head. Not each member listening to each member. You'll be very confused if you try that. 
But each member listening to the head. Who's the head? Jesus Christ is the head. It's His body. He's the head of the church. He gives the orders. Lord, what do you want me to do? That should be our individual prayer. Here, show me my gift. Show me my place. What do you want from me? Not what do you want from Him. Let me pray about His role. You pray about yours. Few things in life feel as wonderful as a healthy body. When your body is operating at peak, ooh, it's a great feeling. And, and you know the difference. All it takes is a sickness or, or something to lay out for a, for a while, and then you remember, oh, I, I missed that feeling. And then when it comes back, yes, amen, that's the feeling I wanted. When we used to have Sunday nights years ago, in fact, I think I had just moved. Uh, it had been a couple years. I, I had moved from California here. And I was still getting used to the local cuisine. You know, it's a lot hotter here than it is everywhere else on earth in terms of Mexican food. And so I ate this burrito after a Sunday night service, and it was, it was hot. It was spicy, but it was really good. And uh, I ate it, and then about an hour later, it, something just didn't settle right. I don't know what it was. It was, it was just a, it was a bad burrito. <laughs> Tasted good, but whatever was in it wasn't good. And my stomach got upset. And, uh, you know, I figured, well, I'll just wait a while. My, you know, pass. This too shall pass. <laughs> it was two in the morning. When I woke out of my sleep and I doubled over, my wife was out of town. I called a friend who worked here at the church and said, please take me to the hospital. They took me to the hospital. I was awake the rest of the night into the morning. They did blood tests. They did x-rays. They couldn't find anything. The next day, they did more tests. They did more poking with needles. They asked more questions. They didn't know what it was. And I started thinking about the body of Christ in terms of my own body. Because the doctors were trying to figure out, okay, which, which part of this human body isn't working? We don't know. But there's some little part that's emitting a bacteria or not processing something correctly. We don't know what it is. But whatever it is, it's causing all the trouble. Made me sick. That afternoon, they wheeled me into the x-ray department, a department that I was familiar with. I used to work in x-ray. They gave me a test. I remember it well. <laughs> I remember giving the examination years ago. I never in a million years thought I would be having the examination. It was called a barium enema. <laughs> I don't need to go there. I don't need to explain it. I think you get the picture. All I remember is the words of Job came to me. That which I have feared has come upon me, he said. And I thought, which part of my body is doing this to me? And I thought, you know, it's no different than the church many times. All it takes is one member in rebellion to the head who's giving the message. For there to be a division, a disunity... A complaint, a grumbling, a split, a chasm, a schism. 
And all it takes is the world to see that occurrence. And the world says, just like I thought, even Christians can't get along. Even the body of Christ can't function. I, I don't need to join that. I can get that at home. So, God establishes us with you in Christ. Tonight at the Lord's table, we need to make a determination, men and women, that we're not going to let stuff stand in the way of us, of relationships. I'm sorry, the two hardest words in English to say to each other. We ought to say them more often if we need to. Forgive me. Next, same verse, he commissions us. Not only does it say he establishes us, but it says he anointed us. Literally, it means to smear with oil, to rub. In the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets were anointed. They, they rubbed or poured oil on them for service. The point is this, God not only wants unity among us, he wants each of us anointed. He's anointed us for service. He wants all of us serving one another. A Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. Now, when I say ministry, I don't mean that you have to be in a pulpit or you have to be evangelist or you have to be a roving musician or you have to have any kind of visibility, but all of us are called and anointed to serve. We're commissioned. Third, he owns us and protects us. Verse 22, who also has sealed us. That means ownership. God has staked his claim on you. Uh, in, in the old days, the days of Corinth, the owners of merchandise would take a ring that was on their hand. It was their own special insignia. And they'd push the ring into clay or into wax. And whatever that clay or wax was on symbolized that that guy owns it. God has Put his seal on you. He's claimed you. He said, you're mine. The Bible says you're not your own anymore. You're bought with a price. It also speaks not only of identity, but of security. Because an unbroken seal meant the contents were undisturbed. And Paul is saying, God owns you, and God will keep you, protect you. He holds you. He'll keep you fast and secure to the very end. And then finally... He gives us a foretaste of the future. It says He has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee or a pledge or a down payment. A down payment. It's a good term, actually. A guarantee was, was some money or something that was given to seal the transaction legally. It made the contract a legal binding contract. This is how the New Living Translation renders it. He has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment of everything he will give us. This is what it means. One day you're going to be in heaven. You're going to have everlasting joy, everlasting peace, everlasting you know the rest. But now he's given us a foretaste of that by saving us, placing the Spirit within us, giving us now the love of Christ, now the peace that passes all understanding. 
which is a foretaste of coming attractions. It's just a down, it's just the first installment. Remember what it was like the night you gave your life to Christ for the day and you, you, you just said, oh, I get it now. I understand it. I'm satisfied. Something in my heart is different. This is wonderful. It's just the beginning, baby. It's a foretaste of coming attractions. So, Paul the Apostle opens up his heart, gets vulnerable, personal, emotional. He says, I've suffered greatly, but even though I've suffered, I've been comforted greatly. And the comfort that I've received at the beginning part of this chapter, he says, it's so that I can console and comfort you. Now, part of the grief that Paul got was from the Corinthians themselves. And yet what's cool about Paul is he never focuses on the problem as much as the comfort, the solution, the grace, the love, the forgiveness. In fact, I'm going to read two more verses. I'm skipping ahead, but it's part of the same thought. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come to you again in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? I didn't come. I didn't want to make you sorrowful. You should be glad I didn't come. You shouldn't be angry because I was going to give you a piece of my apostolic mind. I didn't want to come to you in sorrow. I wanted to encourage you. I wanted you to encourage me. I wanted there to be joy. What a great, what a great heart. It's a great story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was moping around the house, the story goes, one day. And then the next day, he was even worse. And then the next day, he kept moping and complaining and grumbling. So finally, his wife, who I understand was a very edgy, kind of a pistol, interesting personality. Katie, after a few days of this, decided to dress all in black as if she was mourning. So Martin saw that one day, came in and said, who died? And she said, God is dead. Martin Luther said, Katie, how dare you say that? What do you mean God is dead? She goes, well, I've been, I've been watching you the last few days. And in looking at you as a Christian, all I can conclude by your attitude is God died. And it convicted him. Because here's a man supposedly preaching the resurrected Christ, continually living as if God doesn't live. So that inspired him to write a sign in Latin, Vivit, he lives. And he pasted that up in his study, and Martin said, every time I started to feel doleful, remorseful, down, depressed, I looked at that sign, he lives. Tonight we're celebrating the greatest sacrifice of love, Jesus Christ on a cross. But what we're celebrating isn't just the death, but the resurrection. He lives tonight. And, and that idea of Christ living ought to be seen among us. Does that make a difference at your home? Does that make a difference in your business? Does that make a difference in your studies? He lives. He's alive. Why should we go around as if he's dead when he lives? Because he lives... It means that in our relationships with one another, there ought to be love and forgiveness 
because we're under his living, watchful care and eye. Amen?